Lord, we come to you with thanksgiving in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Thank you, Lord, for how you help. Thank you, Lord, for the hope you give. We ask, Lord, that we would come fully to you today, right now, that every part of our lives would be open to your word, to your sight, to your light, to your love, to your correction, wherever it is needed. We desire it and we ask for it. To your encouragement, because Lord, you know we need it and we desire it and you promise it. To your equipping, so that we, maturing together in you, would be prepared to stand strong and give testimony for who you are and what you do. We thank you, Lord, for your word today. And by your spirit, we ask that we would not only understand it, but that we would apply it in Jesus' name. As a boy growing up, I lived outside of the city limits, a fairly rural area, at least at the time. And our house was on a hill. That was a blessing. It was a beautiful place to grow up. It was a great place to be a child. There was a lot of open space to run and enjoy. The benefit of being on a hill is you're high up above and you've got great views and it can make for nice weather. But the downside of that arrangement is the downside because every time you leave your home, you're going downhill. Now that's not such a big deal when you are driving a car, but when you're a kid and you don't drive yet, it means that wherever you're going, you're usually walking or riding a bike, which is a lot of fun downhill. But when the day is over and it's time to come home, it means it's time to climb up the hill. And the particular arrangement of hills that I was in, our home was in kind of a series of rolling hills, worked this way, that actually you would have to go up one hill just to get to the bottom of the next hill. And then once you ascended that hill and got to the crest of it, you'd kind of turn a corner to be at the bottom of the next hill. And I knew that, of course, so that when it came time to come home, I would have a very <laughs> weary recognition within my soul. I've got to ride this bike or walk these steps all the way up all of those hills. And the fact of the matter was, I usually had to do it in fairly short order because I had been out into the valleys and canyons where my friends lived. And so I'd be out playing and riding bikes out there and probably out a little bit longer than I was supposed to, so that by the time I was coming back, I really needed to get back. There wasn't time to dilly-dally, but it was going to take me some time just to get up those hills. And I would, uh, I would do it in this kind of progression. You know, the first hill, which was actually the biggest, as you might imagine, it was not only the tallest, but it was probably the steepest. I would really try and tackle it with all the energy and vigor that I had. I'd be on my bike, pedaling my way. But once I got to the top of that hill, I was only at the bottom of the next one. And then I'd get off the bike and I'd be pushing the bike. By the time I got to the top of that hill, I was finally at the bottom of the hill on which my house stood. And I couldn't quite see my house from the bottom, but almost. Maybe if I had been a little bit taller, then I would have been able to see it. But at that point, I'd think, maybe I'd just leave the bike here overnight, you know? <laughs> just walk the rest of the way. So I feel like I don't have enough energy. I don't think I ever really did that, because I was always afraid it wouldn't be there when I got back. Or even worse than that, that my mom and dad would say, you did what? But the point is that 
every time I felt like I was cresting the top of something, I was also only getting to the bottom of the next challenge. I mention it because I think some of us feel that way in these days. We do everything we can to surmount the challenge. We are rising up and trying to do it in a faithful manner. And when we get to the top, we find that we're just at the bottom of the next hill. And every time that we get to the place where we can actually perceive what comes next, we find that there's further yet to go. It can be quite discouraging. It can be quite hard to feel like you are able to go on. In ancient Israel, there were three times a year when all of the people of the nation were called to come home. And when they were called to come home, they were called to come up. Because their home was the ancient city of God, the city on a hill, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is elevated. It is indeed literally a city on the hill. That's why, as I've mentioned in previous messages, in the scriptures, when it describes people going to Jerusalem, it almost invariably describes it in terms of going up. Even though Jerusalem is actually in the lower half of the, of the nation in terms of north to south. Jesus would come from the nord, northern region of Galilee to Jerusalem, and it describes him as going up to Jerusalem, even though he's traveling down the map. And that's because when you're traveling on foot, what's more relevant than the point of the compass, probably, as long as you know where you're going, is the elevation of the terrain. Jesus was coming from lower lands and rising up, walking up in most instances, as most people of that time would be, walking up the hills. They were called three times a year because, as you will recollect, in the uh, ancient uh, system of faith that God had established in his scriptures, there were three major feast celebrations. There was the Passover in the spring. There was Pentecost, late spring into early summer, or middle of the year. And then in the fall, the Feast of Shelters or Booths, a harvest festival for giving thanks to God when all people would be coming back to Jerusalem to the place of worship, the temple there, and they would have to walk up the hill. And it wasn't easy. And in fact, it's a series of hills that you go up. In fact, even today, if you take the bus up to Jerusalem, you're going to go through some series of switchbacks because it's fairly steep terrain. And those people, they knew that walking up would be wearying. They knew that there would be challenges. That's why they did it together. They didn't traditionally go up alone. They went together. And as they went together, they went rejoicing. In ancient Israel, there were songs specifically written for the worship activity of rising up to the place of the temple. In the book of Psalms, which is the worship manual of ancient Israel, there is a certain set of songs called the Songs of Ascent. In the first part of this Thanksgiving series, on the in-gathering, which is not only what people do at harvest time, bringing in the fruit of the field, but also what God was doing at feast time, gathering in his people, we're going to look at the Psalms of Ascent. It's part of adopting that attitude that says thank you to God in advance. And it does so in a specific pattern, looking back at what God has done, being aware of what God is doing now, and utilizing the energy 
the enthusiasm and the confidence that comes from our faith in that to focus on what is ahead and to keep going forward for what God has promised to us, a harvest of hope ahead. There's actually 15 of these songs of ascent, ascent meaning, of course, to rise, which is why our message on Wednesday night is entitled The Uprising. Today I'm talking about the gathering in, but we will build from this to move upward in worship and in thanksgiving to God in the uprising. In ancient times when they did that, they had these 15 songs to choose from. Four of them come from King David, who is probably the most celebrated author of scripture, uh, excuse me, of the Psalms, and uh, is obviously not only a great leader of faith, but also a great leader of worship, and those two things go hand in hand. There's one Psalm that is attributed to his son, King Solomon, and then the um, others are not necessarily given specific attribution, but we believe that they were all utilized in this process of gathering people together, unifying them in worship, giving them a focus forward, and encouraging them to keep on keeping on, keep going up that mountain. Some of them are relatively short. In fact, all of them are relatively short. Some of them are only three verses long, and the longest is only 18 verses. We are gonna focus on one particular psalm of ascent today, and it's only six verses, and we're not only going to look at it today, but we're going to look at it a bit more on Wednesday. These songs of ascent have other names that they're known by, songs of steps, songs of degrees. Hey, will you capture that for a minute? That's where we're at today. We're in a place where it's just one step at a time. At least for many of us, we feel that way. And these songs reflect that reality but they also reflect the faithfulness of God in the midst of it. It's easy to say, I can't go any further. It's easy to arrive at the top of one hill only to see a higher one in front of you and say, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna stop here. I can't carry the load of my work anymore. I can't carry the load of this relationship anymore. I can't carry the load of what God expects from me by faith anymore. It's easy to falter in that place. And believe me, the enemy of your soul is ready right there to say, not only drop everything, but just drop dead. Just give up. But the songs of steps say it's by degrees that you will rise up. Precept upon precept principle upon principle, day by day, giving thanks to God, verse by verse, confessing his word, prayer by prayer, and person next to person in the body of Christ. Pilgrim songs. You know what pilgrims are. People of faith who are making a pilgrimage. They're making a journey because of their faith. You and I are not just living through this world randomly. Do you remember what Pastor Ron said just a few minutes ago from this pulpit? You're part of this service today by God's destined design. Whether you're streaming live or this is a recording, even if you're hearing it again, God's got a unique purpose for you right where you are. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're invited to be a follower of Jesus, you were made to be a follower of Jesus because you were made to be a lover of God because God is a lover of you and has a good plan and purpose for you. That means your life is about more than just you. It's about him and the others that he connects you to in faith in him. And you become a pilgrim for purpose, 
a pilgrim of God's purpose in your life. I like that. That's good. Remember that. We're going to talk more about that in the days ahead because we are headed into a time where purpose gives us focus and being pilgrims as God's people. I don't just mean the pilgrims of old that we think of at Thanksgiving time. Think of yourself as a pilgrim today, a stranger in a strange land, facing hardship and the unknown, facing divisions among people, but seeking unity in the spirit, trusting God by faith, and planting those seeds every day, believing that the Lord of the harvest will bring a harvest. Gradual psalms, because little by little, God brings about blessing in the lives of the faithful. I mentioned that the three feasts were likely all uh, times when these psalms were sung, but they're perhaps particularly associated with the Feast of Tabernacles and the fall ingathering. Again, I've mentioned before, and it's important to recognize, that even the feasts themselves have this, this chronological context. They give a narrative about what God has done. Each one of the feasts relates to past activities of God, the Passover by which God spared his people in Egypt and brought them out of Egypt and out of slavery. Pentecost, when God gave his word to them on the mountain and also met them face to face in fire and glory and led them by that glory cloud. And also uh, the Feast of Tabernacles when God provided not only for them in the wilderness, but he tabernacled with them. He had a tent in the wilderness with them. They were together. That's what tabernacles is really about. We are with God. God is with us. That's the narrative of what God has done, but there was also the seasonal application of what God is doing. Each one of the feasts related to the harvest. There was the seed time and the early harvest and then the final full total harvest. And each one of the feasts had a prophetic focus about what God would do in the future. Past, present, and future. You and I need to adopt these into our act of worship as well. Think about the harvest of help from God. Each day this week, when you wake up and you make your thank you to God, find something about what he's done for you in the past that can remind you of how faithful he is and can give you that, that sense of gratefulness. You won't have to strive at it, but you can forget it. You and I, it's easy for us to forget what God has done. It's easy for us to have the, the, the attitude of, what have you done for me lately, God? But hey, wait a minute. The maker of all heaven and earth has acted on your behalf. Remember that and give him thanks for it. And when you do, it opens your eyes to how he is working right now. The harvest principle is you don't always see everything that's going on underground, but you trust that the seed will bring forth fruit. And there's labor involved, to be sure. The farmer knows that he or she has got to be out in the field, working with their hands, working with the tools, working with the beasts of burden and the machinery of help because it takes time and toil day by day, step by step, gradually to bring forth a harvest. But when that harvest comes, it's provision. It's food on the plate. 
And when we put that food on the plate, we gather in the family and friends, but the first thing we do is we give thanks to God because we may have been laboring, but all of our labor would have been in vain if it weren't for the seed that he had given and the spirit by which he grew it. God is the giver of the gifts and the fruit. And so we give thanks to him as pilgrims of purpose because we know that we wouldn't have anything if it weren't for God, and God is doing it. So even if you can't see it, just remember, the seed may be hidden, but there is something going to bloom. And that gives us hope for what is to come. Hope that is not just wishful thinking, it's useful action. It's hope that doesn't disappoint, as Paul says in Romans, because our hope is in the Lord. That's the attitude of Psalm 126, a psalm of a sense. Let's read it together. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. So what's being described here is a time in the past when Israel was in crisis. It may be that this psalm was written about one of the times of, of uh, uh, exile. In other words, when the kingdom had been conquered by an enemy and the people of Israel had been taken away in captivity. Or it may be that it is written during that time and it's looking back to the captivity that they had in Egypt. So that there was, even in ancient times, there were more ancient acts of God by which delivery, by which victory had been achieved. And so the people of God are looking back it's something that God has already done. And they're describing how they were in a time of crisis and problems. It was like a living nightmare. And then all of a sudden, they woke up. They were awakened to the reality that God had ended the nightmare. And it was so astonishing that he had so rapidly produced this change, that he had helped them so quickly that they were, they were rubbing their eyes like people who woke up and saying, what, what are we seeing? Is this really true? Are we really free? Are we really home? Have, have our, our fortunes been restored? It's so wonderful. We don't know what to do but except to laugh. It's like a dream come true. And they're not the only ones saying it. The nations around them are pointing at Israel and saying, look what God has done for them. They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. PCF, I pray that you and I would be people like this, pilgrims like this, who say, God has been good to us. And the neighbors in our neighborhood and those in our city and people around us would be able to look at us and say, look how God has taken care of them. Look how faithful God has been to them. God is good because God's been good to them. And we could affirm it and we could say yes and amen. God has been good to us. And in fact, we are affirming it. Now, the psalm is going to take a turn here. We've read the first half of it. In the latter three verses, we get this awareness. The people who have said, in the past we had problems and you solved it, are people who are coming to God right now and saying, we've got issues right now and we're asking for your help again. But notice that they have done so in this inspired word, in this inspired way, just like is described in Philippians 4 that I mentioned earlier. They are starting with rejoicing. They are starting with thanksgiving. They are starting with praise about what God did in the past. 
and they are predicating their present moment upon it. They don't just say, we were glad, but now things are bad and we're coming to you again. They say, we are glad. We are glad even in the midst of this hard hill, even in the midst of this heavy-duty climb. We are glad because we are going forward confident that you who did good for us in the past, you will bring about blessing again. They're going to lift a request to God, but they're lifting it on the basis of their faith. They're saying, even before we see the answer, we're already glad because our gladness is in you, in who you are today. Not only in what you've done in the past, but how we can have confidence in you today. Let that be true of us right now. Choose to be glad. Make a decision. You have the power to do it. If you're going to be led by your feelings, then you can only get up so many hills before you're going to fall down on your face. But if you are led by the fact of who God is and faith in him and his spirit, there is no mountain you cannot climb. But you'll climb it together. We don't do it alone, and that's why we don't forsake the assembling of the faithful as some have done. And even more so as we see the day approaching, as we're getting closer to the top, as he's getting closer to us, we must stay close together. That's why we have our patio gatherings. That's why we have this online streaming service. And this is a real gathering, and there is real benefit in it, and it is essential. Your participation is, is essential because we rise together. God did not bring us into him alone. Each one of us is filled by his spirit when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, but that spirit is a spirit of adoption. It's a spirit that makes known to us the Father has brought you together into a family through the sacrifice of the Son, and now you have the spirit of unity, the spirit of unity that binds you together, that covers over your, your, your problems, that heals your wounds, and that animates your worship. We are glad because of that, even when we look around and we see hardships. Here they say something interesting, and your translation may be different, but notice in verse 4 it says, Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Now, you may see something more like restore our fortunes. They're asking for a reversal of fortune. They're saying things are bad right now, but they were bad before, and you turned them around so fast the bread didn't have time to rise, right? Remember, when God brought them out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, he brought them out so fast they didn't even have time to finish what was cooking in the oven. That's why they had the flat bread as a reminder that God had flattened their enemies and brought them out into a wide and pleasant land where he would give them bread every day, manna from heaven. It was a reversal of fortune and it happened fast. And so they're saying here, reverse our fortunes again. Why is it captivity in some translations and, and fortunes or good situation in the other? Well, it's an idiosyncrasy of the ancient Hebrew language. It just so happens that the term for captivity happened to be used, and I don't know how it came to be used this way. I'm not sure whether anyone does, but it came to be used euphemistically as a, a turnaround, especially a turnaround from what would seem like the opposite of captivity. In other words, captivity came to be identified with freedom from captivity and came to be identified with uh, a restoration. Maybe what was in mind was this idea that they had been bound by something bad. They had been bound in slavery. They had been bound in sin. And what God did 
was not just to cut them loose and let them roam wild, because the scriptures elsewhere see, say that people die for lack of a vision. And a vision really is about being a pilgrim of purpose. What God did was to bind them to something better, to bind them in blessing. In other words, what they were saying was, release us from our captivity to the worldly way that enslaves us to sin and bind us to you and all the blessing of who you are. When you go out and you reap a wheat harvest, you take all of those bundles of individual grains or all those stalks of individual grains and you bundle them together. You bind them together to bring them into the storehouse and to enjoy that fruitfulness. They were saying, bind us up, Lord. Bind up our wounds. Bind up our captors and our enemies so that we could be bound up with you. When they say streams in the south, <coughs> your translation may say, Excuse me, I need, I've got a little desert going on right here. I need a stream in my mouth. They were saying, let water flow in dry lands. Your translation may say the Negev, that's just the formal name for the desert that is in the southern region of Israel. And it's a place where it's difficult to find flowing water. And even the water that is there, for instance, like the Dead Sea, is briny and salty and no good for drinking and no good for growing. If you've ever been to the Salton Sea here in California, it's a similar kind of environment to the Negev. Or if you go to Death Valley, um, as some of you have been into the very desert that is being referred to here in the scripture. You know it's extremely hot, one of the hottest places on earth, extremely high. And it is at high temperatures. And it isn't uh, uh, a fruitful place. It's extremely dry. They're saying, let your living water flow into that place. Even as the prophet had said in Isaiah, the Lord says, I'm doing it. I'm doing a new thing. Will you see it? I'm bringing forth fruitfulness in the barren place. I'm bringing streams into the desert. And then they turn to yet another harvest image. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, that is, he who goes out weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come back in with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves, all those bundles with him. All those bundles. There's something to be seen here, but I want to make a few points first as we come to the conclusion of this message. There's a song that came out of this uh, verse 5, let me show this to you. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. Maybe you, you uh, recollect the song. I referenced it earlier. They shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. They shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. It's an old-time hymn that's familiar to many from a long time ago, and it's basically... Uh, our, our more contemporary counterpart to what this hymn was to the people of ancient Israel. It was a song that was sung often at harvest time. It was often a, a, a hymn that would accompany Thanksgiving. And just like today, if you were raised in an environment where you heard hymns like that, and I realize not everybody was, but I'll bet there are songs that you can hear that bring a warm reminder to you. In fact, when I got into the car today, the radio station was playing Christmas music, as they do, and they were having an announcement. You know, they have people reflecting on what Christmas music means to them, and there was a woman that was saying, it makes me think of childhood. It makes me feel warm, pleasant. 
pleasant things. It makes me remember the memories of family. That's what these psalms were about too. They were psalms that people would recognize. I remember last year when we were walking up this hill, and now here we are again. And last year it was hard, but we made it. And now this year we're walking up again. And maybe this year is harder than last year, but you know what? The song reminds me of the faith of my forebearers. It reminds me of people that went before me, my mother, my father, my grandparents. You have people that were witness to you. Maybe it's a pastor who led you to the Lord. Maybe it is a friend who was a witness to you in some way of God's faithfulness. And the song makes you think of them and their faith. The song makes you think of the fellowship of family. The song helps you to remember the embrace of God around you. But it's also a song that says, have that mind in you even when you're going out into the field. Even when your purpose is one that leads you into crisis. As followers of Jesus... He calls us into places and circumstances that challenge us. And the reality is, as people living in this world, we're going to face challenge no matter what. And there's tears that we shed in this world. Tears of fatigue, tears of fear, tears of pain, tears of loss, tears of grief, of frustration, of anger, of confusion. But if in the midst of that we say, I'll be a seed, plant my life, Lord, in your will, use my prayers for your purposes, there's a harvest that comes from that. He who goes out with the seed comes back with the sheaves. It's interesting, isn't it, that the psalm moves from a collective to a singular. Who is the one who goes forth with a seed and comes back with these bundles of sheaves? Sheaves are the bundles I've described. It's the wheat gathered together from the harvest and bound together. And you would think that this is probably a fairly common word in the scriptures. I actually figured that it would be because a lot of agricultural terms show up a lot in the, in the Bible in literal and figurative ways. But actually, it turns out that this word for sheaf really only has in this particular form two references in all of scripture. One is in Psalm 126 and the other is in Genesis 37 which goes way back into the past. The people of God, the family of God. Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and among those sons was Joseph. And Joseph had a gift from God, which was that he had these prophetic dreams. And as a young man, he had a dream that he felt came from God. And the dream was this. He said, look, we were binding sheaves in the field. We were working together in the field of harvest. And my sheaf, in other words, each bundle represented one of them. My bundle rose up and stood above the others, and your bundles all bowed down to me. 
Oh, boy, if you want to have trouble at Thanksgiving, right? People talk about this. Thanksgiving is sometimes not such a great time because families get together. And what happens when families get together? Sometimes families don't like what one brother has to say to another. These brothers did not like what Joseph was saying to them. What do you think? We're going to bow down to you? You're younger than us, for one thing, because only Benjamin was younger than Joseph. And uh, when uh, Joseph's having this dream, Benjamin probably was young or not yet along. And so uh, they're saying, we're not going to bow down to you. Who do you think you are? And in fact, those very brothers are the ones that are going to bind Joseph up and sell him into slavery, into Egypt. And there's going to be sorrow and tears in Joseph's life for, through no fault of his own for a long, long time. But he keeps faith in God. He holds on to hope. And ultimately, his life becomes a harvest because in days to come, through the prophetic power of the Spirit at work through Joseph and his ability to interpret dreams, he will become a confidant of Pharaoh and a ruler in Egypt. And then when there's a famine and times of crisis come and the people of God are wondering, how are we going to survive? We're going to die. We're going to starve. When they go to Egypt, they find their brother is a ruler and a king. And he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You may be crying, but you're going to be laughing because there's a harvest of help and hope for you here. Now, that's not just in the past. There was someone being looked forward to there in the future. Jesus said that I go to the cross for you, my friends. No one has greater love than this to lay down their life for their friends. It isn't something that Jesus wanted to do because he was so eager to go through pain and suffering. He said to the Father, if it's possible, let this cup of the cross pass from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Why? For the joy set before him, which is you. It's this. It's the rejoicing of the harvest. It's people being saved, people being freed, people being healed, people being brought in and bound to him forever. You are the sheaves and Jesus Christ is the harvester. And he says, I went to the cross in tears and pain, yet silent like a lamb to the slaughter for you. And I rose from the grave with singing, with rejoicing, because I would bring all my brothers together in me. Now the brothers can look to Jesus, the brothers and sisters, and say, who do you think you are? Why should I bow down to you? But friends, there's a famine in the land. And if you're in a desert place, the stream of living water comes only from Christ. Bow before the brother who is the lover of your soul and who speaks better things over your life and mine. Think of these things in conclusion. We give thanks to God because there's a whole bundle of blessings in our past about what he has done and when we remember his past faithfulness to us, we are ready to sing his praises. In the present moment, if you have tears, if you have pain, if you have worries, you don't have to deny it, and you can't deceive God about it anyway. But what you can do is worship him in it. He is a God who has experienced all of those things too. He knows what it is to feel pain. He knows what it is to feel frustration. 
He knows what it is to lose a loved one. He knows something you and I don't know. He knows what it is to die. But behold, he is alive forevermore. Worship him even in the midst of your weeping. Give him thanks in all things. And as you bow before him as a brother, as a sister in the Lord, you give him right worship and he will give you righteous joy. He will give you his life and all its fruitfulness, most abundantly. Lord, we thank you that you gave to us what we could never achieve for ourselves. You gave us life and we squandered it, wandering away in sin. Over and over again, you've been patient with us when we've been impatient with you. Over and over again, you've forgiven us. Over and over again, you've stood us up back on our feet and put us together with brothers and sisters who encourage and equip us and filled us with your spirit and set us on a path. Lord, we trust in you and we are glad. But we are in need. And we also ask, Lord, you who have been faithful before, be faithful again and fulfill your harvest, not only in our lives, but in our world. We will trust in you. We will look to you, Lord. And as we walk through this week, may we rise up in you, that the uprising of our eyes and the upswelling of our faith might be met in the heavenly realm with the outpouring of your blessing and the outworking of your will. Lord, if there are any in this prayer today who need to make a recommitment to you, and maybe that's all of us, I'm ready to recommit to you myself today, Lord, then I pray that you would empower this prayer for that purpose right now, that, Lord, we, we turn ourselves to you. We repent of our wayward ways. If there's someone we need to forgive, Lord, put that forgiveness in our heart and activate us to, to declare that forgiveness fast. If there's something we need to repent of, if there's someone we need to ask forgiveness of, do the same, Lord. Turn us to do that today in whatever way we can. If there is something that we need to change in our lives, some habit, some relationship, some activity that we know is contrary to your word and contrary to your will, deliver us from that, Lord, and instead return us to the captivity of your grace. Return us into the bonds of your love and that place of real blessing and let us live righteously in you. Lord, if there's anyone praying with me now and they've never made a commitment to you, I pray, Lord, that you would inspire that prayer in them right now. And friend, if that's you, turn your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ right now. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother and the amazing truth of it is that friend is the Lord God on high. When you come to meet him, you'll find out he is enthroned as king. The king is your friend. The king is your brother. The king is your savior. Now stop resisting his appeal to you and put your hand in his. We reached out hands earlier. Do it again and say, Lord, take my hand and Jesus help me. Jesus save me. Jesus
Jesus, take me. I'm yours. Let your joy fill me now. Let your forgiveness cleanse me now. Let your spirit fill me now. And Jesus says, yes, yes, yes. Your prayer is heard. Your prayer is answered. Now, if you're going to walk all the way up the hill, you can't do it alone. We rise together. Get connected to the body of Christ. It's non-negotiable in the kingdom. It is the command of the king. But better than that, it is the bundle of blessing that brings about so much fruitfulness. If you're looking for a church home and you're in the LA area, we invite you to be a part of PCF. We are receiving new members today. We'll baptize you today. And you need to be baptized into the body of Christ. If you're elsewhere, there are other churches all over this city, all over this world that preach the word, that know the Lord, that love his spirit, and that will receive you. But get connected somewhere. And if you need help with that, contact us. We love you. We care about you. And we believe in God's good purposes for you and for us. Let's join together this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. live, streaming from our website, as we talk about the uprising. And you'll get an uplift from it, I promise. But you'll also be well prepared to go forth from it with joy for thanksgiving. In that joy and in that grace, go forth now in the name of Jesus Christ and be blessed. Amen.